ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. David Hannan's father desperately wanted his son to grow up to become a great test cricketer. The only problem was David hated cricket. Luckily, David's father had a bunch of other passions that he shared with, or should that be, inflicted on his family, including diving and spearfishing. David discovered that he really loved being in the ocean. And from the age of 11, he started taking pictures of what he was seeing under the waves. When David was a young man, he built himself a boat and set off for a life at sea and ended up spending much of his time filming off the coast of Australia and in the tropical waters of the Coral Triangle just to our north. David is an Emmy Award-winning cinematographer whose programs include Coral Sea Dreaming, Sex on the Reef and the feature documentary Shark Water. Hi, David. Hi, Sarah. How did your dad first get keen on spearfishing? My father was involved with a couple of young men at the time who were world champion spearfishing. They were going to the world championships, so he thought he could fast track himself. (laughs) And they were very keen to find a rich patron which had a boat that could take them out. So it was a marriage made in heaven or hell, depending on the days and the experiences. And so how did he get you and your brother to practice in order to be ready for the open ocean? We had a lot of different practice techniques, which we were required to participate in. One was shooting practice. So we would uh, set up target boards in the swimming pool and jump in like SAS divers with a loaded spear gun snap shoot. The first time he ever tried that, he sent a high-powered uh, jet gun straight through the pool wall. So that was one of the trainings, so you could get the fish. And uh, the second thing was a bit more extreme, was walking around holding your breath for as long as possible. This was in the era before the modern times where everybody's heard about the deep sea freedom. Nobody knew about what, how deep you could go and how long you could hold your breath. So we would be walking around the pool and collapsing when we ran, you know, unconscious with my mother holding tea parties at the house. So don't worry about them. They're just breath holding. So one of my craziest memories is we'd always be practising in the car and the windows would be rolled up. We were in his... Uh, sports Mercedes and be driving us to Melbourne Grammar and Turak and we'd come up to, to the lights, red lights, and we'd be just about uh, ready to break a record, go, all going red in the face, looking like we're all having heart attacks. And we would have other drivers stop and bang on the windows and things like that. We'd be waving them away. <laughs> and what would it feel like? What does it feel like to take a breath again after so long? It feels very euphoric. That's why I think people do it. One of the things about the early deep breathing is it gets you high when you actually breathe in and out and hyperventilate. So if you do this for an hour or so, and you're doing it for a lot longer if you're out there swimming around for a long time, you get very, very high from the natural breathing technique. What were you aiming for? How did you know how long it could even be possible to hold your breath for? Well, I was looking in the Guinness Book of Records at the time, and as an 11-year-old, going, I thought I was going to beat it, so I tra- I've been training for a couple of years, and when I thought I had beat it, unwitnessed, it was about four minutes 45, which is pathetic by these days, standards. But then I'd got the new book and they'd gone another minute by then. So I gave up on the competition. What did your mother make of all this, of her husband and sons, you know, turning red and passing out from holding their breath? Well, you'd think a mother would stop that type of behaviour, but she was actually in some ways more extreme because she'd started uh, training with, you know, Dawn Fraser in the early, her squad before the Melbourne Olympics and uh, swimming marathons in the Yarra and then 
high-speed water skiing. So she was even crazier than my father. <laughs> so she just got slightly embarrassed having to explain what was going on with the passing out. But the most infuriating thing is she didn't participate in any of that breathing stuff. She would simply come out after about three months of us training and, and do twice as far as us, which infuriated <laughs> my father. <laughs> what was it like then the first time you took this training and, and went freediving in the, in the ocean? Pretty horrible, actually, because uh, we were dragged out uh, in about 20 metre waters, zero visibility off Aries Inlet um, in winter, so where you can't see anything. So luckily I started diving in temperate, dirty water, and uh, as my life progressed, it became warmer and more beautiful. <laughs> were you scuba diving as a kid as well, David? Look, we learnt the scuba diving, but we disdained scuba diving. We thought that was for people who couldn't free dive, so... It was many, many years before I really focused on the scuba diving. So because freediving is such a free way of seeing the underwater world, you get a completely different perspective when you're able to dive down through the layers to the zone which scuba divers then see. So you get the best of both. And were you spearfishing? I mean, that was the, the aim. That was what your dad was into when you were doing the freediving. The people my father adopted, the young men who were the world champ, they were fanatical spearing. So he started spearing. He was a mad hunter and actually pretty hopeless at it, but he loved it. So he got us into it and uh, it was a fantastic sport, believe it or not, not the killing of the fish, but it teaches you to be so resilient uh, on your own in the water, which is, you know, fantastic um, survival skill. But it also teaches you about the underwater habitat and how fish and creatures behave. So this was a fantastic sort of learning curve for me. Was it always smooth sailing when you and your family were out in the ocean together? Look, my parents had uh, plane disasters, ferry sinking. This is on their own trips away. It was just, I think my mother crash landed three times and they sunk about four times. But my father, in taking the family out, he was so dangerous in my boat, my mother used to make us all wear full gear ready to jump in. And there were numerous times we capsized and, you know, I remember kicking the whole family in at about 11 kilometre into shore. My father was a, a big wave surfer. He sort of pioneered the surfing at Bells Beach. He came from this world um, and the time when things were a lot different. We, we didn't have any um, voluntary marine rescue groups then. You didn't sort of sign off when you went out to sea. So it was a different era. And uh, no, he was just determined to get a better engine or, you know, we'd get more safety gear, you know, and learn to swim further. It was all connected. The big swimming was so we could save ourselves when we had the mishaps, I, I realised later. Your dad loved the ocean, but not only the ocean. How important was cricket to him? My father's father followed the Test cricket team around for about 10 years before he died. So that gives a perspective. But my father decided from an early age that I had special skills. And so for Christmas present, two Christmas, he built a pitch out the backyard in Beaumaris and then one at the holiday house down at Aries Inlet where we used to, it was my only escape from cricket. And he got bowling machines and he used to buy all the Test cricket balls and shine them up. And he used to film it all with 16mm cameras and replay it. So were you good then, David, as a kid? I ended up, through the sheer training, I'll never know actually, because the sheer amount of training, no one could fail to be quite impressive at school level. So I ended up school captain in the school cricket for a while. That doesn't sound like it's something you enjoyed. I hated cricket and it was just terrible because uh, all the things he'd also introduced me to by this stage was the surfing and the diving and the... 
you know, water skiing, everything was a lot more exciting to me than cricket. But he decided he had a prodigy son. You say your mum was into sport as well. Tell me more about her experiences as, as a swimmer and in the 1956 Olympics. Well, my mother started training from about 14, I believe, in the same squad that Dawn Fraser was in, and it was a view to the Olympics. But she had to bail out of that training squad for life reasons. She had to go to work, but was still invited. When the Olympics came up, they had the first exhibition of what's now synchronised swimming. It was underwater ballet then. And the photos I've got are quite incredible of all the women in Speedos at that event. And uh, she told me the story. It was Speedos' first attempt to make these skinny bikini-type bathers. And they they went transparent when they all wore it. So you can imagine that in the 1956. (laughs) So were your parents competitive with one another when it came to sport? Incredibly competitive, you know, which I didn't really have a perspective. I thought every family was like ours, which you all do, I suppose, at that age. But... uh, they competed in everything and luckily the, she didn't play football and he played about 350 matches of football, so that was his one. But she was a better squash player. He never beat her at squash his whole lifetime and I never did either and I tried. I played her when she was 64 and I thought, surely I can beat her. <laughs> never did. So, And she was ruthless. There was no fun. As soon as she put on her sporting mode, she was ruthless and cruel. What was it like watching your mum and dad play squash against one another? It was quite terrifying because they taught us, you know, brought up not swearing. I could never say the word bloody even in that era. It was crazy. And so they were so proper. And on the squash court, we'd be up in the, you know, boxes watching. They would just let loose. It was incredible. It was swearing and words I can't say on the ABC. <laughs> Your dad obviously was really keen for you to share that competitive drive. How did he try to improve you and your brother's chances at the school swimming carnival? This particular Christmas, he decided that uh, he would get us into the really high-end swimming. And I think this was because all the disasters at sea were likely to face, or he faced, and he thought I would face a lifetime too. And so we had, he hired the first guy, I believe, to swim the English Channel. He came across him. And so that was our Christmas present for this guy to roll up at 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning, and that went on for a couple of years. And where would he take you swimming, this In the backyard pool. and. And uh, this, this is for the official training with this guy, and he would be filming this with his 16mm cameras too. I've still got cabinets of these films, but he also took us, you know, you've probably heard of the Icebergers, Dan Mill. Well, he was one of them. So another memory was when he would get us ready for the ocean was sending us out to sea in the early morning light in Melbourne. And uh, when he, we saw him waving at a distance from the cliffs of Blow Morris, that was when it was time to come back in. <laughs> <laughs> resentful of it as a kid? How did you feel about all of this, these expectations and this drive that he was obviously wanting to instil in you? Looking back, I really thought this was quite normal, but I started to realise it wasn't normal when I would have sleepovers. Some people would come over for sleepovers and the horror my friends from school experience because they weren't let off the hook. He would just come into the room at 4.30, that's it. And they'd say, oh, kidding, go away, go away. <laughs> so that's what made me realise their extreme reaction. Where did his drive come from? Like what was it in, in him or his background, do you think, that helps explain why he was so motivated to do this kind of thing? My father was motivated to be so extreme for odd reasons perhaps, but he had a very difficult childhood upbringing. His mother was an alcoholic and he was too embarrassed to take his friends back at the biggest state in Turak. 
So he came uh, from a family that also broke up, no direct abuse or anything, but no interest in sports. He wasn't encouraged to do anything and he didn't have all the parental stuff he would have liked. And so he went overboard. When he had his kids, myself and my brother, he decided, I'm not going there. He went the opposite direction. What did he do for work, your dad? My father was a director and one of the main shareholders through his direct family of Maples Furniture. It was... uh, dynasty that really started in the 1850s uh, was Maples and Patterson started off in Melbourne um, in the gold rush days and there was a lot of money around in those days so it was a great time to be building furniture. And it was um, the, the money of that went partly into buying this extraordinary house, the historic Ripponlea estate. Tell me about what that place looks like for people who aren't from Melbourne and mightn't be familiar with it. Ripponlea Estate is the same as entering one of like the one of the botanical gardens, uh, one of the best botanical gardens. It's absolutely it's about seven hectares now. It's right in the middle of Turak. It was actually given to the uh, government uh, because it was just too big for the rates. It was like occupying two suburbs, but it had lyrebird parks on the property. And I remember trying to hunt them with my brother on Christmas occasions. That's and, terrible, David. I hope those lyrebirds outwitted you. <laughs> but it also had, uh, you know, things that impressed me was I actually saw Father Christmas come down the dumb waiter there as about a seven-year-old. I was absolutely sure he didn't exist. And I saw this and he existed for another couple of years. It was incredible. I've never seen a, a performance like that when they would send someone down, merging with soot and everything. So it was Auntie Lulu owned that. And um, my grandmother and uh, her sister, Auntie Lulu, they weren't, they'd run off with each other's men. It's a bit of a family scandal. We've never got to the bottom of it quite, but they didn't like each other much. So we only visited uh, Ripponlea twice a year. When you were 16, David, your parents went on a diving trip to Fiji... What happened on that trip? They were in a very um, remote area of Fiji in the Asagua group and my father, with his hunting, had reached a pinnacle of his determination to spear big fish so he'd decided too many fish were getting away using normal nylon cord with the spear. So he'd got aircraft stainless steel cable on this that meant no fish could get away once he shot it, wasn't going to break off in the coral. He was also using the free diving techniques that we'd been training on but he was found in 130 feet of water um, after a dive. He'd blacked out. My mother actually found him. The people on the boat were too horrified. They just went into shock. And so the tragedy for my mother was having to go look for him and finding him floating peacefully, like 130 feet down with the spear gun around him. We now know that that was a shallow water blackout or combination of fighting the fish for too long. But with a shallow water blackout, you don't have any sense that you're low on oxygen you just pass. So that's one nice aspect. But in this era, there were something like 718 deaths that happened worldwide. No one knew why. This is before anybody knew what shallow water blackout. Nowadays, you tell all your kids, don't practice hyperventilating when you swim in the pool. So he was one of the pioneers of uh, that medical emergency. Your poor mum. How did you find out, you and your brother back home in Melbourne? It's one of those um, funny memories. Myself and my brother remember somehow knowing this. We had a mothercraft nurse at the time looking after us and she walked in the room. There was a look on her face and it was, which one? We knew something on the look of her face. So she had to tell us because it took two days of her sailing back to Fiji with the body and she she wrote all of it down, what she was feeling in the incident. So I've still got the diaries of that. Then it took another three days for her to get back to Australia. 
How old was your dad when he died? He was only 44. Unfortunately, when my father died, one of the tragedies was he was looking to retire the following year from the Maples, and he was in the middle of building a boat, an ocean-going boat, with a very famous Queenslander called Ron Isbell that uh, taught the tailors and the crops. And so there's another colleague he'd met by this time, and that boat was, uh, yeah, that was going to be his getaway. And he'd also bought a 300-acre property on the New South Wales coast, which he never got to see. And so when he died, um, there was all these things, not only the death, but there was this new property where, um, my mother had only seen it once. And, uh, yeah, so it was just an absolute tragedy. The shock for me was uh, really profound, seeing that he never got to his retirement, he never got on that boat. Was your mum wary then about you and your brother going back into the ocean, doing the kind of diving you'd been doing with your dad after losing her husband in that accident? Look, one funny black comic moment was my mother was determined that uh, we would not lose our inspirations in the sea or fear it. So I remember we took us in very clearly into New South Wales coast, took myself and my brother down. Unfortunately, that day she took us in to re-inspire us and make sure we didn't fear, was full of blue bottle jellyfish. (laughs) And I remember both my brother, I had a full wet on, and her screaming on the rock covered in these things, you know. So, But anyway, (laughs) she insisted that we not give up our watery love. So although your mum was in grief after your dad's death, it wasn't the end of her story in any sense. Tell me what she went on to do professionally. Well, my mother had started in early age as an architect's draftsman, very early, around 14 or 16 she got into this and was quite brilliant at building houses, some renowned houses over the next few years. But that led her into a love of charcoal sketching at first and she did beautiful detailed uh, drawings of all the old sheds around Australia and uh, all sorts of things. And that merged as she kept going into a love of uh, pastels. And she became very, very acknowledged Australian artist in her own right with these pastels. And that, I think, helped her. She used to say she only painted well when she was grieving and depressed. And so, ironically, it was during the 18 years after my father died that all her best artwork And she's then founded a a famous portrait award, the Shirley Hannan Portrait Award, which is one of the the wealthiest in Australia for portrait painting. But what about this house that she designed, Hannan House 2, which is famous as one of those modernist houses in in Beau Morris? Tell me about about that house and your memories of her designing that. Well, I I remember the Hannan House 1. Hannan House 2 came out of Hannan House 1 in the sense that the block was twice as big as the Hannon House 2 is. So the original house had a whole garden and a stream through it and trampoline areas and native gardens and really, really beautiful. It was about five acres, I think. And when my father died, my mother split the block in half and decided to... She loved architecture, she loved building, so this gave her a challenge when a time of grief to really put those skills at work. But she was also a very accomplished, like uh, knowledge all around the place, furniture builder and copper artwork, sculptures and things. So, And a, a dressmaker too. She studied with an Italian. She, all, everything I'm feeling she very t- inadequate just hearing about your mother, David. I felt very <laughs> inadequate with both my parents. I, you know, it was incredible. It was like growing up. Did you live in that house, the Hannon House too? Well, what was fantastic for me is mum. when mum finished building and designing this beautiful place, she needed to uh, move on 
up into the New South Wales to the other property because she needed to fill her grief with things to do. So she had to go and do that. So I was left alone, just as I'm going to Monash University by this day, with the Hannon House 2 to play in. And it had a sauna and a pool. And you can imagine, it was fantastic. The it, best uni house ever. It was incredible. Yeah. So you went off to Monash University. What was the expectation for young David Hannon at university and, and fu- his future after that? Look, the expectation for the young David Hamm, besides the test cricket career, was to run the furniture business on behalf of my father while he went sailing on his boat he was building. So that's what I see now. He wanted me to be the eyes on the ground while he went sailing and followed through in the family business. So I had never thought about doing anything else at Melbourne Grammar I went to. I got very good marks because I was made to study as fanatically as they did the sport and uh, got a scholarship to Monash doing economics and law. And how did you feel about the prospect of becoming the director of the family furniture company? I never thought about doing anything else till my father died, but it was introduction to LSD and mushrooms. And I guess it only took two or three trips for me to realise there's no way I'm ever going to spend the rest of my life in an office, particularly with the other introductions I'd had to other aspects of life from my parents. So did you finish that degree? No, I bailed up two-thirds of the way through, top marks, and they begging me to come back, and I just took off to Western Australia. I had no idea why. To Western Australia? So where did you land there? Landed uh, in Fremantle. I'd spent a couple of months' work trying to work out what I would do. And again, I'm not trying to promote uh, illicit substances here, but again, it was a acid trip there again, where I was wandering around Fremantle Harbour, and a Croatian fisherman yelled out in great anger, get away, I'm not after anybody. This was huge money in Western Australia, the lobster fishery, and the Fremantle uh, fleet were just getting ready to go. So myself in this state said, all right, I'll go. Sorry, not meant to annoy you. And he said, get here tomorrow. What offered you a job? He was offering me a job. I had no idea. And I'd never done any lobster fishing and I'd been saying because of the state I was in, of course course I've done it before. I lied. And then we (laughs) took off. The next day, we drove 200 kilometres up to a very remote place, Samantes, you know, in the Tim Winton era of Western Australia. And uh, that was it. This lobster fishing career took off. Within five days, he realised I knew nothing about fishing or the boats, and he gave me a week to master it. So tell me about the life of of a lobster fisherman back then. What was a typical day? Lobster fishing in Australia, in Western Australia, was the best possible job for example, we would only go out every second day uh, but we, because we worked out we caught twice as much anyway rather than going out every day. And so we had a day off. We were earning incredible money back then. We were catching up to two tonnes of lobsters on the top things out of 50 pots to give some idea. The whole back of the deck would be flowing, overflowing with them, jumping out the engine room, would have lobsters all over it. It was an amazing place. We had motorbikes. You can drive on the beaches there. There was a little island just off Savantes where I was working, which was full of beautiful seals, no regulations then. So I used to go over there and lie around with the seals and play with them and show all my friends. How was the actual fishing part? How challenging is that? Oh, lobster fishing is not challenging at all with the pots because you just chuck in some really smelly fish heads, horrible stuff. People saw what you used to catch lobsters. They wouldn't eat lobsters. That's one thing. (laughs) So your job was to put out the pots and haul them in. I was the rope man. This was before they had all the new winch. They've got new winch systems that coil ropes perfectly. You don't need a winch anymore. But at that stage, it was like being a cowboy that was good on lassoes (laughs) because you're pulling up pots from very, very deep water. So there'd be like hundreds of metres of rope in every pot and it's coming up super fast. 
And so you're using your fingers on a high-speed winch to do all this coiling stuff. It's an arcane arc. It was the thing I was proudest of probably in my whole life. It meant, meant nothing after they invented the machine. But it was amazing for a short time, hero in your own lunchtime type film. After living this, this fisherman's life for a few years, you decided to build a boat. How did you know how to do that? The boat building idea came because there was a friend of mine that we considered like, you know, pretty hopeless, drank too much, smoked too much dope. And he built in front of us a 30-foot Polynesian design catamaran. <laughs> um, and one hull was uh, nearly half a metre longer than the other. There's all sorts of things. Right? But he built this and actually put it in the water. And it's because he was so hopeless and managed to do this, I decided we can do this. I'm not as bad as him. And so I went back to Melbourne and saw one of my school friends and said, let's build a big boat. And it was at the time it didn't seem extreme because my father had uh, died not so long ago and he was building a 40-foot boat. So, again, I thought that's what you do if you can afford it. And uh, But I imagine he had workers building his boat while it was you building yours yourself. Well, remember the Kentucky expeditions, the raft that's got the uh, just tied up with the reeds? The boat we built, we decided, had to be built for idiots so that we could land on reefs, go across really shallow water, unlikely to capsize. If all the, the mask and the sails came down, we'd be on a big raft. So that was one reason we went for this particular design. And we employed a shipwright that came and educated us in certain aspects, and then we'd get rid of him. He'd come in and out. And so it was amazing learning curve. How long did it take? And we thought it was going to cost $70,000 and take six months. It took $250,000, which was huge in that era, and it took three years. (laughs) (laughs) This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, David, what happened when it was finally time to launch upon the open ocean? The launching was amazing for many reasons. We hadn't slept for about three days. We'd had a party with about 5,000 people where people came from all over the country. None of this made any sense later. Why did we do it in this order? But we thought, let's have the big party. Then we got all nervous about the launch. Then we had to get escorted down the Great Ocean Road from Aries Inlet by the local police with this 50-foot boat and then put into the sea uh, middle of the winter. You know, we needed everything to be perfect. The whole town had a holiday, so we had all the people there. We had Channel 7 and it We'd mark, I remember we'd marked the waterline on the boat, but we'd made it, beefed it up, made it heavier for survey. We had to get it through survey. And the alarming thing is, I remember on the beach, the camera's filming and the water's going over the waterline. And I actually thought it's not even going to float at the time. So I remember that and it would have been live on the news. And uh, we took off from there. I remember my mother on the back, um, she shouldn't have been there. She was holding on, helping push it into the waves the last bit. And she grabbed on, told her, go, go. And I remember her jumping off about 200 metres out to sea and swimming back. <laughs> but it did float. It was It did float. And we got through, through the heads uh, two hours later and then uh, 80 kilometre an hour storm hit Melbourne. We would have been demolished. We just got through the heads and tied up just when the storm hit. So. So where did you head once you had this handmade boat? 
we headed up to uh, the coast through all this stormy stuff. I remember all these boats being sunk everywhere we went. We just got into a place on the east coast before a storm hit. And as a new sailor, I'd never done any sailing. That was the other funny thing about putting a sailboat. So we're trying to sail this boat and learn how to do it up the coast. All a disastrous winter for all these other boats. And we eventually got up to Brisbane and uh, ended up on the Barrier Reef. And what, what were you doing up there? Well, on the, on the Barrier Reef, we're chartering out of Great Keppel Island to the Capricorn Bunker Groups, uh, out to places like Heron Island and Lady Musgrave, some beautiful islands back then, and there still are. And so we were taking people overnight and then we'd run for seven days a dive course. There only two of us on board. We'd have about seven or eight people. We'd teach three dives a day, compressors running, night dives, teaching, cooking, sailing. It just all seemed quite uh, normal. Then I don't know how we found the energy. And then we'd go back and we'd repeat that. When did you first take a camera underwater? The first time I was introduced into underwater photography was from my father at about age 11. My father, he had the good fortune to give me a Conus camera. It was a very simple camera at the time. And I remember him saying, he said, you take good shots or take it off you. So it's quite a, you know, a bit of a threat to, to get a beautiful toy like that. It was a fantastic present that day. And that was Heron Island. So it was while riding on the backs of manta rays, trying to snap shots to get the point of view in those days. Did having a, a camera in your hands change the way you looked at the world under the, under the waves, do you remember? Having a camera underwater, um, having been a spear fisherman, I realised that uh, I didn't like the spear fishing from the spearing side. I liked it from the world that it revealed to me through the search for the fish and looking around. So when I got the camera, it became much more so. Through a camera, you slow down and if, if you've got an artistic eye, you start to see everything in the moment in the water. When you first go underwater, there's so much around you. You're floating in a gravity-free environment and it's all overwhelming. It takes you years to slow down enough mentally to see things underwater. So the camera slows you down and it allows you to see properly. So once you were living up on the Barrier Reef and, and taking people out on your boat, were you filming and, and photographing under the water at that point too? No, unfortunately, you know, when I'd built the boat, I thought, right, I'd, I remember being filmed on the um, news then saying that, I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. So I was very keen. That was the pathway. I had the cameras. But running a boat was such a disastrous time drag on you. It was impossible to sail and run a boat and charter and be a cinematographer making films. So, you know, impossible. So actually I didn't do any filming then, but what it did do is I was diving instructing then. So again, I had uh, nearly eight years seeing the best of uh, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu and New Caledonia, the Great Barrier Reef and the Coral Sea. I had all those years underwater seeing what I was seeing and I'm meanwhile watching television and what I was seeing on television looked really boring and I sort of arrogantly, but I'm just looking and seeing beautiful stuff and crap on television. I'm going, right, I, I'm going to be an underwater filmmaker. <laughs> How did you make that leap? By selling the boat and uh, doing a year at Swinburne, I was lucky enough to get into a post-grad course when I was about 30. So I never thought I'd leave the boat when you wouldn't think you'd leave a boating life. But, you know, my advice to people now is, uh, yeah, do it when you're young and uh, don't expect it to last because it sort of helps you find where you're going to want to go. In 1988, you captured something that had never before been documented on film. What was it? 
I landed in Townsville in 88 just as this group of scientists, young students at the time, were about to become world famous through the discovery, which they'd done several years before, but they'd only just started to document it with some still cameras. There was almost nothing had been captured on it, a couple of shots in a lab. It was coral spawning, so we didn't know how reefs reproduced till 1982, and my arrival in Townsville coincided with this group of scientists winning the Eureka or Science Award and it exploding into world attention about reefs. So it was just good fortune. They were going to make a film, their own film, called Sex on the Reef, it was at the time, and I was joining in to help them on that. And their careers took off so quickly within a month or so that they passed it to me. They said, this is your film, Sex on the Reef. So I had their support to film this out at Magnetic Island, off Townsville and on the reef. It took me five years of summers to film what I used in the first film. So you get one chance every year. But and how long does the spawning itself last well, for depend- each year? The spawning, depending which corals you're looking for, can last a split second um, because a lot of corals explode. They just literally, their orgasm is just exploding eggs. You look at it, it erupts. That's the females into it. And yet you've got other giant corals that are huge, massive corals like parietes. And the males, you'll see giant sperm clouds rising. It's like a hole, it's like a bushfire in Queensland. So you can see all of this. But down there you start to see all these other animals uh, going off to at different times. And But anyway, all the corals have a different pattern of spawning and it's incredibly hard to film. And it's probably why nobody had ever noticed. So Nobody does it not all happen at the one time? No, it doesn't. It, it's actually, there's a lot of myths about that. And in the early films used to say it all happens at one time, but they found there's a lot of variation in that. In places uh, like the Barrier Reef in the South End, it's fairly predictable, but it's very, very difficult to capture. You capture it over about nine days, you know, different species going on off different nights. But mostly you've got five minutes uh, at the most if it's a good coral. And the problem is you can go down there and mark all these corals, you can chip off a bit of the coral, see it's full of eggs, the scientists do this to determine, and you think, this is going to be fantastic. I remember one of the first spawning things, we'd marked all this beautiful reefs, we knew it was all going to go off, and none of those corals, they became dribblers. In other words, they looked fantastic, but it was just pathetic little things going, and all these boring corals near them that you'd never think of, were just going major. And so I actually, that night, after a week of preparation in this one site, turned off all the lights, left my crew complete, bolted into the distance in the total dark till I got away from it, turned on the lights, and that was the first images. <laughs> and when you're there in the water while there's this coral spawning happening, I mean, I know there's a part of your brain that's trying to think, how do I get this shot and where's the lights and what's the camera doing? But is there another part of you that's just astonished? Look, night diving in itself is amazing. One of the key beauties of night diving is all the planktonic life that you see. Everything you've seen, the movies out there of those luminous light forms and you've got everything illuminated with a black background. It's absolutely gorgeous to start with. Then when you add spawning to that, you've got multicoloured eggs, red, green, blue. You've got corals exploding left, right. You've got smoking sperm comms here. You know, the Parietes corals, uh, one of the interesting things is you can have a male coral, massive coral, about 10 metres high, putting its sperm into the water three kilometres downstream. The female will be there. And when that female senses some of that sperm in all that water drifting out, it explodes into it. It's, it's so it's 
the understanding of what's happening makes it miraculous besides the visuals of it. What's it sound like underwater on, on those nights? Underwater sounds are usually your breathing through the tank, which strangely you block out. You don't hear it once you do a lot of diving. First people start diving, they're terrified by the sound of their own breath. But the other thing you don't hear much in the spawning, you hear all the clicks. It's like, uh, you know how birds sing, the bird um, habitat and the environment, the soundscape we're used to? The underwater has a version of that. And fish talk and they grunt and the shrimps are clicking like the crickets and the frogs. So... Yeah, it's a very alive down there. Most movies, you know, including my own, you end up putting music over it because it would sound too strange to <laughs> put a movie on with crickets and frogs burping and grunts happening. And... But that's what it really sounds yeah. like. You started filming off the coast of PNG in 2005. What drew you up there? I'd been filming on the Barrier Reef uh, for many years by the time I discovered PNG. And the attraction for Papua New Guinea is that it's got islands. And uh, not to put the Barrier Reef down, but as a filmmaker, it's a windy place. It blows a gale most of the time with the trade winds. And most of the best reefs on the Barrier Reef aren't protected by islands. So you very rarely get to dive the very good spots. And it's a huge amount of uh, effort to get to these areas. It's very expensive and a long way out. So a big deal. In PNG, you can literally step off the shore and you've got the best coral reef you've ever seen on the planet, and if it's more than a one-millimetre ripple, you call it a rough day, and you've got rainforest overhanging, and some colleagues of mine by this time had been filming over there, and there was just... I had to get there. What creatures did you see under the ocean at PNG that were new for you? Papua New Guinea took me four years to be able to see it all. The first times I went underwater there... There were so many creatures, and I'd been filming and diving for a long time, decades and decades by this, and I was so overwhelmed, I just didn't know what to look at. You would look at one thing and flick your eyes to the right, there'd be something else, and then there's dolphins or manta rays overhead. It was completely a freak out as a cinematographer. And as you start to adjust, you start seeing more and more and more. But in Papua New Guinea, the things that we were finding that were most remarkable were not on the reefs. They were in what we call the muck zones. Muck zones are in between the reefs, the mud areas, the salt area. That's where life really explodes in the Coral Triangle. What were you seeing there? You get animals that extreme evolutionary adaption, like mimic octopus, uh, another octopus called wonderpus, and uh, little blue rings. You've got uh, mimic uh, seahorses. There's hundreds and hundreds of little gobies, uh, goby families that are like little communities of fish. I'm talking hundreds of different species. They have all these blind shrimp slaves that are, you know, you can watch them building their homes. You know, the blind shrimp, the whole job of their life is just the goby sits outside. These shrimps in pairs just keep the burrow open. Their whole life is just served. Um, <laughs> doing this. So fascinating to watch. What's a mimic octopus? Mimic octopus was only discovered, I think, in the 80s or something like that. But a mimic octopus has the ability to mimic up to about 17 different marine creatures. So the ones I've filmed, they, one moment they look like a flounder, next moment a crab. And most extraordinary one I ever filmed um, um, came out of its uh, little hole, just popped out of sand. It's on nothing area. You wouldn't even think to look there. And it popped out. Then a female popped up and they joined together with tentacles over about two metres. Then the female decided, all right, I'm having sex, but I'm hungry. And so I was able to record these creatures changing shape, 
feeding at the same time, moving across the reef, changing shape and having sex, and the female dragging the male. What? And then 20 minutes later, it's all gone, they're back in the burrow and you won't see them again. <laughs> and they're usually changing shape as a, a way to hide from predators or ward off predators. Or what, What's the behaviour for? Well, octopus are very juicy to a lot of creatures, and so the mimic octopus will, they believe they change their shape both to avoid predation, but also a predatory strategy. If you roll up looking like an innocent crab to something that's not scared of crabs and then you turn and engulf them, that's a good strategy. What about the, the manta rays that you saw up there? What kind of behaviour did you see them engaged in? It's a beautiful sight off Samurai Reef. This is all in Mill Bay province that we used to go to that there was a little rock that was about 50 metres um, from the boat and about seven metres of water. And it was a manta ray feeding station. So you could spend hours, and I did spend hours and hours and hours while we were there just sitting on this rock, letting all these manta rays come up uh, for their cleaning. Uh, the fish come out from the rock and clean them in droves, hundreds of them. But what was quite remarkable is they're cleaning you so it's at the same time. So while I'm the rock filming the mantas being cleaned, the cleaner fish are cleaning me, and the mantas would get quite annoyed with me sometimes because I was hogging the space. <laughs> in their world, they come down, have their turn, and let the next one. So they would come into me and say, it's time's up, and push me away. <laughs> <laughs> so are there creatures that are curious about you when you're out there in the ocean? What, what kind of interest do they have in you? You're obviously interested in them, but what about the other way around? The interesting thing about... Uh, the sea and creatures' interactions with humans, it's all dominated by dolphins uh, in, in our public appreciation. But there's so many animals that uh, interact with you. So, you know, manta rays are one. I mean, there's no question, and we're not allowed to do this anymore, nobody should attempt it, but manta rays are a great to ride, for example. You find what we call players, and the player will be a manta ray that will come right up to you, allow you to just softly touch the top of it, and it takes you for a ride and it come, brings you back to the same spot and will come up, look you in the eye and they love being scratched, itched. Like, you know, you scratch your dog and it rolls over. So if you get under there, they like the bubbles. And so they get very, very curious. And very early on I learnt with manta rays that most divers at the time, and they still do this today, they say, don't move, just stay there, let the mantas do their thing, don't frighten them off. That's completely wrong. That's only so the divers can all get their shots. I found out with filming, if I chase them and do crazy things and charge them, they love me and they start into, I've got friends for life. I'm interesting. What about cuttlefish? Cuttlefish are incredibly intelligent too. I've had um, incidences where I've had a couple of cuttlefish I've found. I've started filming one of them. The other cuttlefish has come around the back of the camera. It's literally right next to me watching the shot of me filming its other mate. Then I can actually <laughs> gather them up, just put them loosely on top of the camera, cart them around to a place, oh, this looks like a good prop like you would a model, let them go there, film them there with one or the other watching at you and then take them back where I found them. Next day, start again. What, they'd be there waiting for you? Well, you've trained them up and they only live for three years and these things are so curious and interactive with you. I was just in um, Tasmania diving with a girl and we're looking at the octopus down there and far from running away from you, she was telling me the story and I've had many incidences like this of an octopus that popped out, uh, grabbed her, her partner's flash and camera, was taking off across the reef with it. They collect things like bowbirds. So... You know, I've had experiences with these octopus where, again, they're following you around. They're on the camera. They'll sit on the camera. They want to know what you're doing. They're, they treat you as another octopus. You can actually, within about two or three dives, 
Start training. They're quicker to train than a dog. You can point left, they'll go left, point right, they'll go right. <laughs> what about some of the more dangerous creatures you might encounter under the sea? What are the tricks to filming sharks? Well, the trick, the trick to filming sharks is finding sharks these days. Um, you know, everybody's probably heard the statistics, but, you know, well over 100 million still killed. The diving I used to do when I was 11, now about 50 years ago, you'd see sharks everywhere. It was absolutely natural. I remember my first experience after a dozen sharks as an 11-year-old before you hop in the water. That's just, they were everywhere. They were just part of nature. And they never bothered you. And we'd grown up spearing where you have fights with the sharks. They're trying to get you fish. And you realise that they're not after you and they're quite timid. And so sharks were something that demystified very, very quickly for me in my career. And I met a young man called Rob Stewart at the time who went on to become the premier shark conservationist of his time. You know, he tragically died far too young. But he taught me a whole other dimension. He taught me that, and I've never done this and don't try this, you know, the white pointer working out which white. Some are white pointers, some aren't players, some are. A player, again, is one you can trust. And if you trust a white pointer, you let it come up and rub your stomach and you put your hand over and rub it softly over the head and you put it to sleep and it roll over and it's an amazing thing. And Sharkwater, one of the films that we did together, it opens with that scene of him caressing, not a tiger shark or a white pointer, but a bull shark like that. You've been going to the Barrier Reef since you were a kid, David. When did you first start noticing changes? When did you first start seeing the coral bleaching? I first started seeing uh, changes on the reef uh, when I first really did the initial work up in Townsville around 30 years old, I'd been diving it for many years before, but around 30, this was before the big bleachings uh, that we saw. But what I was noticing, the crown of thorns were running rampant through the reef at that stage. They were more deadly than the bleaching is in many ways. But it was in tremendous trouble then. I released a program called Coral Sea Dreaming in 1992. That was four years of documenting the reef at that time on different boats going way out everywhere. And uh, I remember the preface we did to that film was uh, it was 70% of the world's reefs are dead, dying or damaged back then. 92. 92. And uh, so it was very obvious talking to the scientists, some of the scientists. A lot of the scientists don't didn't like to talk about how bad it was. They knew how bad it was. I'm not, I'm not even criticising, but it's a real problem because they get funding for their field research. So if you go around saying, we think the reef's going to die, and many did think it was some big trouble back then, but it was evident that it was a very changed place. And over the next uh, 20 years, uh, yeah, just started witnessing um, the death. Since I've been filming there from 30, I estimate we've probably lost 50 to 60% of the hard coral cover. So in that time, that's like seeing 50, 60% of a forest gone and uh, a lot more from other causes. Was there ever a part of you that didn't want to go back? What motivates me with um, all these reef issues in the background there, they're not depressing so much for me because I've been knowing this is going to be happen for years and years. So a lot of us aren't surprised the shock is a long rolling one. We're not shocked just going back. We expect it to be worse. But what motivates me is to film the beauty. So I actually share all my imagery worldwide and it's used for conservation films, but I actually focus entirely on the beauty side because I'm trying to record uh, a record of the reef for posterity, really, is my aim, because I don't think it's going to be here within 
maybe a couple of years could be gone. And a couple not, of years? Yeah, not many people. One, one, there's very little media. I go to places for months and months and I film very long form, so I'll roll the camera for five minutes across the reef. I use underwater scooters. And so I've got images of big landscapes where most media see on reefs a small snapshot, a bit of behaviour or this or that. So my feeling is there's only 9 million scuba divers estimated in the world. That's hardly anybody's been witness. Only a fraction of them film and only a fraction of them dive regularly. So if you really... What's tragic to me is the entire world's losing a world they haven't even seen, don't have any connection with except a little bit on television. And I think it's important to record that and let people see what they've lost. Are there any places of hope for you over watching these decades of devastation in this underwater world? There's always hope for us because uh, one of the negative types of hopes is it took about 10 million years the last time for reefs to come back. So one cliche you hear a bit is reefs are very resilient. They come back, but they can take millions of years, which isn't very comforting. But I would say the hope factor is quite strong about climate scientists now and underwater. And it's strange. Why it is is because it's now worldwide subject. When I first started doing this, you couldn't mention climate change. Now we've got climate change ministers everywhere. The scientists are starting to do reseeding experiments. They can learn how to grow corals in aquarium, put them back in the ocean. They're learning to keep other animals and stem cells and examples in captivity because they can't survive in the wild. So given the trajectory we're on, I think what's going to happen is we're going to lose our beautiful reef, but in the later part of this century, we're going to have the means to start reseeding it uh, back when we get control, control of uh, the climate. Be interesting world then. My, one of the problems is if you don't have a big visual record, which has been why I'm so passionate about, you, one, you don't know what you're trying to reseed and the public may not be interested, but if they don't know how beautiful it was, why would they be pouring billions of dollars into a reseeding when you've got wars on and other things? We definitely should be um, doing cryogenics and aquarium conservation of corals uh, worldwide at all levels. In fact, um, one of the greatest hopes for reefs is that public and private aquariums, you know, everybody wants to save a reef. Um, You might think this is against conservation. Get an aquarium have some marine animals in there, learn how they work. You'll be the conservers. I like to tell people this is where the reef needs to move for it to survive before it can go back into the world. You said earlier that your dad died in that underwater accident just at a point in his life where he was going to make a big change with his career and the way he spent his time. What do you think he would make of the way that you've spent your life? I think my father would have been absolutely shocked at first, momentarily, when he saw me bail out of university, not go into the family furniture business. But then when he took a heartbeat and thought about this, he would have gone, hang on, I was building a boat at 44 and going to retire. My son saw me die at 16. He's just inherited my money. What on earth am I thinking that it's bad that he's going to build a boat and do it? Why wouldn't he do that? His, his lesson in life is... Don't wait till 44. (laughs) Do you think of him much when you're out in the ocean? I think of my father and other colleagues I've lost underwater all the time underwater. It's very comforting. Um, For one, you know, they've been beautiful people. And two, the deaths in the water like this are beautiful deaths. You don't know you're gone. In fact, uh, it's lovely, like feeling high the last moment. So it's sort of feel like they're there. They're down there while I'm there, and it's very comforting, actually. And it also reminds me, 
don't be too risky. David, it's been really wonderful to hear some of your stories on land and under the sea. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thanks, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. 